0: I hope that you've done all that you can to participate in Invite your One this next Sunday. It's going to be very, very important that we um, seat ourselves right, and uh, we'll communicate with you this week about seating arrangements and those kinds of things if we find it's necessary. Parking, it'd be best if you're physically able to park as far away from the building on the property as you can. Uh, that'll be a great big help if physically you're not able we want to uh, make seats uh, or parking spaces especially available for you and uh, parents of small children as well is what we'd like to do but generally the staff ends up parking as far away from the building as we can to set an example so if we could do that that would be a great uh, a great benefit to those uh, that will be with us please join me in Matthew chapter 19 as we look there and we talked this morning about Jesus the master of our family uh, marriage humor is rather simple humor to get um, people moving with. Uh, it's not very difficult to get a crowd with you when you start talking about marriage and marriage humor. And one of the reasons is, is that there's so much material. Um, every one of, nearly every one of us is the product of some kind of marriage between a man and a woman. And um, that's, uh, we, we've watched that, we've experienced that, we've viewed that and um, it's rather easy then uh, to get chuckles when it comes to marriage humor in fact um, in other places i've asked uh, michelle early on in my pastorate to speak and she spends about the first third of her address making fun of me and there's just so much material Uh, she can't pass it up and some of it is even true and so um, it's not difficult at all now when it comes to my marriage with sherry michelle the truth is Um, it's obvious I made a better decision about a life partner than she did but uh, in any case she's got plenty of material to make fun of me well the the reason that it's easy to do this is that marriage is relevant it's very relevant and Jesus spoke on it in Matthew chapter 19 here in this text he spoke about the profoundly relevant issue of marriage And I'm always a little nervous to preach um, on this particular subject uh, because Jesus does uh, address divorce in the text. And I want to assure you that if you have been through uh, the struggle and difficulty of divorce, you are welcome here at Beach Haven Baptist Church. Uh, Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And we want you here and thank God for you. And I will say to you, if you're new to Beach Haven... Uh, we have at least 65 couples in our congregation that have celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, and we have through the years. And then we have a number that are in second marriages that will soon or already have celebrated their 30th and 40th wedding anniversary. So I, I want to encourage you, Jesus Christ makes a difference. He does. He magnifies His name even in marriage and in family. Um, In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus does address this, and there are several subjects that he addresses first. First, he addresses marriage, beginning in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any uh, reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so then they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let not man separate now beginning in verse three um, the pharisees come to jesus and they give him a question that is impossible to answer without upsetting or bothering someone the world then was divided into two Jewish schools that were organized around two different rabbis. One rabbi was the rabbi Hillel, and the other one happened to be uh, the rabbi Shammai. Uh, the rabbi Shammai was the most restrictive when it came to divorce. Uh, he uh, said and taught that uh, divorce was permissible uh, only when there had been marital, moral, unfaithfulness in the marriage. That was not the prevailing view in the culture in that day. That was a minority view. The school of Hillel was the predominant view in that day. And it, uh, they said that you could divorce for just about any reason. Uh, a man only could initiate a divorce in that day. And uh, he could do so for such frivolous and flippant reasons as uh, his wife would make a bad meal. Or if he found someone that was more attractive. And so this was the prevailing view. And let me tell you about culture. Even a culture is first century Israel. The culture will always be more permissive than what God is in everything. And for the rest of our lives, we will find that there is a countercultural rub. And that's the first thing about biblical marriage in verse 3. Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus counters the prevailing notion of the school of Hillel, with his answer and so christian marriage will oftentimes be countercultural. do not be surprised if when you walk with god and you order your marriage by the precepts of his word that it is different than the prevailing culture what we've experienced in the united states until about the 70s was very odd and very uh, very unusual in the history of men and women uh, in marriage uh, in the United States, we experienced great marital fidelity and, and uh, long-lasting marriages for, gen- for uh, decades and decades. Uh, that, that began to crumble back in the 70s. And so we are in a time in the United States where things are a bit more typical as they have been throughout history. So do not be surprised if your views are countercultural. But there is a <coughs> another uh, item here as well. And not only is it countercultural, but uh, Christian marriage is complementary jesus said that they were made male and female in verse number four now he's quoting genesis chapter 1 verse 27 where it uh, god made man and woman made them male and female the implication is is that they are to be married to one another and that is very obvious and very clear by the physical and the emotional and the psychological compatibility Of men and women we'll elaborate that maybe in uh, time to come but men and women and I'm about to set a record an understatement men and women are different and they're supposed to be and and it really begins even in the womb and I won't go into all of that right now but that's one of the reasons that they think differently. One of many reasons. And then you've got their family of origin, the family in which they grow up in, the models that are set there. You've got the culture. You've got their interaction with God in His Word. And they are to be complements with one another, just like an engine and a transmission are complements in a car. So don't be surprised when you marry that you're different from one another. It's supposed to be that way. And then Jesus goes on to reference Um, that Christian marriage is to be constant. He said, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Christian ideal is one man, one woman for life. Now, he has ways of dealing with cases where that's not the case, and we will try to encourage and elaborate there later. So Jesus here first talks about marriage, but then he talks about divorce. Beginning in verse number 7. Why then did Moses give a command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And that's back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, if the man finds an indecency in his wife, he can put her away. Well, the effort there back in Deuteronomy 24, 1 was to protect the woman. I mean, if you've got men thinking that they can just dismiss their wives and eliminate their marriages over frivolous reasons, well, what does that do to the woman? Well, there was a measure in Deuteronomy 24 to protect her so that, The rest of the culture and society would not think that she'd been morally unfaithful, which required execution in that day. Moral unfaithfulness, sexual impurity was met with capital punishment in Israel in that day. Well, if the husband was frivolous in how he handled his marriage and frivolous in divorcing his wife, well, God came up with a means through Moses to protect her from that so her reputation would not be spoiled and she would not be liable to penalties of the court and so jesus said in verse 8 puts it a different way he said to them moses because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives and there jesus gets to the heart of the issue when dealing with the pharisees but he goes on to say from the beginning it was not so so there is a concession here to protect the woman from severe mistreatment and then he points to creation Um, he said at the end of verse 8, but from the beginning it was not so. Well, here and back in verse 4 and in verse 5, Jesus goes back to the Genesis creation and the account of creation in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. That is why you do not need to be embarrassed are hesitant to hold to a straightforward, simple, biblical, Christ-like view of Genesis 1 and 2. There is absolutely no problem in this day with any intelligent Christian holding the same position on Genesis 1 and 2 that Jesus held. In fact, it's the better position. And that's what you've got here in this text. And so Jesus roots Christian marriage in Genesis 1 and and two and so he goes back to creation after this concession then he comes to a conclusion in verse number nine and i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her whose divorce commits adultery that is his conclusion from his study of genesis 1 and 2 and he nailed it hard and so the pharisees had one view with, uh, that was consistent with the school of Shammai. Uh, the Sadducees and others in the culture had another view that was consistent with the view of Hillel. Jesus makes it even tighter here in this text. And that is his conclusion. Well, Jesus goes on then uh, and answers a question from his disciples in verse 10. He says, uh, the, the, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You see how frivolous they were in their views of marriage and divorce, especially the role of the man. Well, in verse 11, Jesus answers this, and he begins to elaborate on a passage that we often apply to singleness. And he said there are three reasons why someone might be in that status and not be interested in marriage. And he uses the word eunuch here in this text. And the word eunuch in the biblical text is a bit broader than what we think about in our current day. Beginning in verse 11, All cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it's been given. That's the divine passive. God gives some the spiritual gift of embracing this, and some he does not. So he goes on in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are some that physically are incapable of engaging in a marriage. And then there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and oftentimes they would guard Aram's. And then there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. In other words, they're committed missionaries, they're committed servants, they may be laypersons, they may be ministers, but they give themselves to singleness in order to reach the world for Christ. And immediately, who do you think of from your missions history? Well, you think of Lottie Moon. Uh, She uh, was engaged one time to Crawford H. Toy who began to, at Southern Seminary, who began to embrace an evolutionary approach to the Scripture. And he had to be dismissed from the faculty. She was engaged to him at the time, and she found out about his views, and she broke off the engagement with him. And uh, she was on furlough in Virginia one time with her family, and a niece came to her and asked her the question, Aunt Lottie, have you ever been in love? And she said, yes. One time I was, but God had first place in my life, and because the two conflicted, there was no doubt about the result, and so she lived the rest of her life single for the kingdom of heaven. I think also of Bill Wallace of China. He grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, went to the medical school there, spent his life in China till the communists killed him and the communist overthrow in the late 1940s. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here, and he says in verse 11, not everyone can accept what I'm teaching about singleness. Uh, That there are some who can, who've actually got a spiritual gift that Paul will elaborate on in 1 Corinthians 7, who've got a spiritual gift of singleness, and some do not. So, if you don't have the spiritual gift of singleness, you're not expected to be single your entire life. If you do, enjoy it and serve the Lord with the extra time and opportunities that you have. Then, the passage follows, beginning in verse number 13. And this comes as no surprise to me. Look with me in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and departed from there. Does it come as any surprise to you that following a discussion of marriage, divorce, and singleness, that Jesus would follow this with an experience with children? A recent study has shown that children whose parents have divorced have a 36% chance more of denying and rejecting the faith as adults than those who stay together. Now, that doesn't mean everything is hopeless, but you've got to put in some extra work if that happens to be your case. But Jesus makes it very, very clear. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if this is what the Lord says and that this is what Jesus expects from those in the kingdom when it comes to uh, the faith and when it comes to walking with God when it comes to our marriage and family how in the world can I perform this well there's several things we need to master one master grace master grace now it comes as no surprise to me that chapter 19 about marriage and divorce and remarriage and family follows a chapter 18 verses 21 to 35 on forgiveness look back at verse number 21 With me, would you? Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Now, Peter's rather impressed with himself, saying, well, up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, oh, that's not what I say. Up to seven times. But to 70 times seven. And then he tells the story about a fellow who was owed $10 million, to put it in a rough equivalent today. And a man came to him who owed him $10 million and said, Please forgive me, I don't have enough to pay you. And he forgave. Him. Well, that same man that was forgiven had someone who owed him $1,000. And the man came to him and said, Please forgive me this debt, I can't pay it. And the man who had been forgiven $10 million looked at the man who owed him 1000 and beat him and threw him into jail. And Jesus was terribly, terribly bothered by this. And he said to His disciples, in verse 31. So when this fellow servant saw what had been done, they were very grieved and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. One of the key marks of marriages that make it and flourish and do well is that they're not made up of two perfect people. They are instead made up of two wonderful forgivers. They've mastered forgiveness. Now Elizabeth Elliot of another generation wrote in one of her books this following statement. She said, A man who has chosen to marry would do well to contemplate the fact that he marries a sinner. A woman, of course, does the same. There is no one else to marry. You can have all sorts of struggles and difficulties and failures in your personal life, and still flourish through the hard times or on the other side if you will master this point, and that is forgiveness. Now, how do I master that? Well, the text is very clear. Just become consumed with how much God has forgiven you. Become consumed of the price that He paid to achieve that and to purchase grace for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. One man, Homer Hammondtree, said that when he heard about the gospel and gospel songs, he said, as I reflected on what Jesus did for me, I felt like someone broke a jar of honey and put it all over my soul. And I've got to tell you, I feel much the same way when I think about what Jesus has done for me and how he has forgiven me listen if you'll become very grateful for the gratitude expressed to you vertically you're going to find great motivation to express it horizontally to others as well you've got to become consumed over what it took to forgive you as God has done so master grace but there's a second thing master guidance I had someone tell me a long time ago that usually marriage fizzles in the finish it's because it was often at fault from the first if it fizzles in the finish it was often at fault from the first and i had a time in my life where i interviewed a number of people who had struggled that way interviewed about 25 couples in fact when i was in college and every one of them ended up saying to me there was something in the dating relationship that i was able to identify and i knew then that i shouldn't move forward but i did my parents warned me, my soul and my spirit. God would convict me when I read his word. It bothered and it upset me. Oftentimes that's the case. Now, it's not always the case that it was at fault from the first. But chapter 19, verse 6, look here. So then there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You want to make absolutely certain that you don't merely wait till times get difficult to involve God and His grace in your marriage. You want Him up front before their rings and vows exchanged. You've got to be absolutely certain that you're doing the will of God long before you ever seriously consider marriage. And the best way to be in God's will then is to be in God's will now. Oh, you've got to be in God's will now. So often through the years, what i found is that young adults will backslide and drift from God and engage in all sorts of foolish behavior and fall in love with someone and marry in a backslidden condition when heaven is brass, not, not at the high point of their walk with God, but the low point. I mean, they're chasing potential spouses in bars and chasing potential spouses in places that you're not likely to find one that is godly and walking with God. And and please don't do that. Wait until you are thoroughly cleansed and right with God before you ever consider, uh, ever consider any serious marriage relationship. Make things right vertically before you ever try to expand relationally horizontally. You've got to master God's guidance. So there's several questions to ask then to have God's guidance in uh, this area. One, am I completely surrendered to God? Am I willing to go precisely by his word in these things? Luke 8.18, Jesus said, Be careful how you hear. For, for um, he who has this carefulness, to him shall more be given, but to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And so the question is, are you already doing what you know to do in your walk with God? If you're not, you're not getting any more. If you want guidance in the marriage relationship, you need to already be doing what God has told you to do in His word, fully surrendered to Him. Am I surrendered, am I surrendered to God completely? But the second question is, did the practical issues line up? James chapter three verse 17. or is this union wise? Is this union wise? James chapter three verse 17 is very instructive. When you've got the wisdom of God, it's marked with the following things. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I've known some singles to say, oh God, please give me a sign. Give me a sign. Should I marry this person or not? And I mean, he's drunk every weekend. There's your sign. No! It's not pure. We're always fighting with one another and can't get along. And he's met my parents once, and, or she's met my parents once and can't stand them. Well, it's, it's not peaceable. There's your sign. Hey, listen, these signs are a whole lot more obvious than what many of us uh, may, may have realized heretofore. And, and so we master guidance by asking ourselves, is this union wise? Then a third question. What do, what do family and godly friends think? Proverbs 11:14 14 says there's victory or safety in many counselors. In other words, you want your family there. You want godly friends to be uh, approved. In fact, when I marry a couple, I've got to know, uh, if they're a young couple, I've got to know that their uh, parents are on board with it. I gave my parents veto power. They didn't get anywhere near it, but uh, I gave them veto power. Uh, if it's an older couple, if it's an older couple, I want to know that their children are on board with the union. In other words, are family and godly friends on board with this? And then, do I have the peace of God? Do I have the peace of God about this? Is God convincing me with his peace that this is the right way to go? Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 says, "Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart." Now, excuse me. Now that word "rule" was an ancient word that sometimes was used to describe what a referee or an umpire would do in a game and that's what the peace of god does when when you're bothered and unsettled about a decision you need to hold off on it you need to wait but whenever you've got peace and these other factors line up then it may be wise to move forward so you master grace then you master guidance now if a person that you're dating does not fit into this it's time to move that person into the friend zone that's where they go Now I want to encourage you, the God who has never made a mistake, the God who's never had to confess a sin, the God who has never failed, wants to guide you in this area of life, does it not make sense to surrender this to him? So master guidance, master grace, but then master growth. Marriage is not only a revolution in a person's life, it's also a revelation. All sorts of things are revealed in our hearts and souls whenever we marry. Now, back to Elizabeth Elliot. Here's what she said. I think this is exceptionally wise. She said, Marriage is perhaps the first opportunity really to know ourselves, our weaknesses, and our capacities. We're not ready for such revelations. Day by day in the business of loving and living with another who is a part of ourselves and yet opposite. You can't get more opposite than man and woman. We discover much that has heretofore been hidden from our own eyes. It is a fire. Marriage is a fire, a purging fire, and we must recognize and accept its action. And that's true. When you marry, you're constantly with someone who uh, challenges and surfaces weaknesses that you have in your heart and life. I I have to be real honest with you. Before I got married, I was the most patient and pleasant person in Fort Worth, Texas. (laughs) But I only had my life to organize. And then I got married. And I came from a naval family. Dad was a military officer. My mother was a schoolteacher. We were super disciplined. And that's what we did. We planned things weeks and months in advance, went specifically according to a plan. And I got married to someone that did not value those things, (laughs) but valued love and valued forgiveness, of which I would need much, and valued um, a party, a celebration. So, to put it a different way, she was a lot of fun, and I was the most boring person in Texas. (laughs) And I liked it that way. That's what marriage does. Marriage will surface where you're weak. It is a part of spiritual growth. And so, whenever you marry, you've got to be committed to personally growing in Christ and giving your all. And and Jesus implies this in verse number 8. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce. In other words, it is terribly important, and the first duty of every husband and every wife is to keep a heart that is sweet and tender and pliable and flexible before God. You can't do it otherwise. We used to have social pressures in the United States that kept people together. Those are gone. If you're going to keep it together, you're going to have to do it on your own, and you're going to need a dynamic, robust, growing walk with God. And so you're going to have to be in his word. And in fact, in teaching about marriage and all, Jesus goes back to the word in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. You need to be involved in a dedicated, in a dedicated robust, growing, dynamic relationship with a local church. You need to be here for that. And and let me let me say to you, a lot of growth will come from authorities in life. That's why you've got to be very very careful, for the sake of your children especially, never ever to criticize an authority in their lives. Do not criticize their teachers in front, uh, in their presence. Do not criticize law enforcement. Do not criticize political leaders in their presence. Do not criticize staff or pastors. In their presence. Now, all of these may be worthy of criticism at one point or another, just don't do it in front of the kids. Never ever criticize your husband in front of the children. Never criticize your wife in front of the children. Now, Dr. Paul Roberts told of receiving a letter from a woman in which she criticized him greatly, and the pastor of the church before him and the pastor of the church before him. And then she finished in the last paragraph with this statement. I have five children, and they all hate God and the church and the faith. Well, of course they do. She's reaping what she'd sown. She had planted the dark seeds of doubt in their soul, and they had merely come to fruition. We, we, We don't do that before kids. They, until they're about juniors in high school, they don't have really, uh, most of them, enough to nuance morality. So you've got to keep everything pristine and clear and pure in front of them until they are mature enough to nuance things and understand that people are oftentimes a mixture. You've got to be careful. This is how you can grow and master uh, growth. But then finally, master the generations. Again, it comes as no surprise to me that in verses 13 to 15, Jesus elaborates on children and says, Don't forbid them from coming to me. Do not hinder them. And he had some really intense things to say about hindering children. Hindering children when it comes uh, to um, uh, their walk with Christ. Now, Malachi elaborates on this back in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse number uh, 15. Here malachi says but did he not make them one husband and wife one having a remnant of the spirit god's spirit superintends weddings and unites men and women when they're married and why one why did god bring them together as one here's why in malachi 2 15 he seeks godly offspring there is something powerful about the marriage relationship that affects kids when it's under Christ and done the way God wants it done. There's something about the marriage relationship that propels forward the faith of the kids. So, never, ever, ever live a life or a home relationship or a marriage relationship in such a way that your kids get into a state that God has got to intervene with a miracle to turn them around. Because He usually doesn't. Oh, God can do miracles. Don't misunderstand me. I believe in that and have witnessed it often. But God expects us to do our work and to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He doesn't take that responsibility. We do. And so we build our marriages and build our families according to His Word in order to produce godly offspring. One reason Jesus upholds the permanency of marriage is that in many ways it reflects His own commitment to His people. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, for Christ loved the church and gave Himself for them. Do you know something? When you come to Jesus, your relationship with Him and your status with Him is permanent and eternal. It can never change. Oh, you may have some ups and downs in your walk with Him. But when you come to Jesus, you are in His grace and in His grasp and bonded to Him for all eternity. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, you become one spirit with Him. In marriage, you merely become one flesh. But in salvation, you become one spirit with Jesus And you are with Him forever and forever. In other words, whenever you come to Christ, you repent from your sin, you place faith in His cross and resurrection, Jesus bonds and weds Himself to you and will never, ever divorce you. And you'll not be able to do that with Him. In fact, what Jesus does do is He pulls off another kind of divorce. Uh, The word for forgiveness in Ephesians 1 is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 7 for the word divorce. Whenever you come to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ divorces your guilt and your lostness and your sin and all the penalties involved. He divorces all of that from you and weds you and makes you His own for all eternity. You know, I don't understand then why more people aren't turning to Jesus. But you will today. You've got the opportunity and He's inviting you to do so. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray about it. Our blessed God, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that there's opportunity today and you're willing to receive repentance and faith in Christ. Thank you so much for the promise of salvation. And thank you for how permanent, long-lasting death until death do us part marriages illustrate beautifully and wonderfully the permanent relationship we have with Jesus when we repent and place faith in Him. Thank you that you could not make it any more relevant or powerful or practical. Thank you. And I want to pray for friends today that they would eliminate from their hearts and reject decisively today anything to keep them from coming to Christ. Help others that do know you to eliminate anything that keeps them from doing your will. And we pray that you would show up with power in this hour and magnify the glory of Jesus and demonstrate demonstrate oh god your grace in lives by making changes thank you for hearing us now now in just a moment we're going to sing and we're going to ask you to come and staff will be here in the front to receive you if you need to receive christ as savior we want to help you with that maybe god's moving you to become part of this church or maybe you are already a member you need to rededicate yourself to christ we want you to have that opportunity as we sing I want to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Blessed God, would you magnify Jesus in these moments. Help friends to make clear decisions for you, real and life-changing.